Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, February 26th, and we're covering Buffett's annual shareholder letter. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Matt, good to have you. Always good to be here. Fantastic. So, folks, a little background before we get too far into the episode. Warren Buffett is the chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, which is at its core an insurance company. Um, insurance companies make their money in essentially two ways. The first is by making what's called an underwriting profit. And so this is you know, when you pay your premiums, the insurer ends up paying out some percentage or perhaps all, and in some cases even more than all of those premiums out in claims. And especially when like a big natural disaster happens, that's the case. So insurers make their money, hopefully, from their perspective at least, by paying out less than they're, than they're taking in in premiums. That's what's called an underwriting profit. And then the second way that they make money is by investing that float. And so that is the money that you've paid in in premiums that they haven't yet paid out. They're usually able to invest that in some way, shape, or form, usually short-term bonds. And that's kind of how another way that they're able to basically leverage that money and, and make a few bucks here and there, which, particularly if they're not making an underwriting profit, can kind of make the bridge to them surviving and hopefully prospering. Of course, Berkshire Hathaway is a wee bit more developed than most insurance companies. Yeah, Berkshire Hathaway actually started as a textile company that Buffett bought. Um, I could do a whole, you know, ten minute spiel on the on how he came to acquire that. But anyway, he didn't really have any interest in owning a failing textile business. So he loved the insurance business for the reasons Michael just said. Um, and he kind of has a different instead of investing what's called the float in short term bonds. Buffett's per- preference is to take it and invest in you know whole businesses, individual stocks nowadays. Um, so he started acquiring insurance companies, some of which are have grown very, very big over the years. Um, Geico is probably the biggest household name he owns, but it's actually a relatively small part of Berkshire's insurance operations. So these generate cash from paid-in premiums that Buffett has been able to very successfully invest over time using none of his own money. It's kind of someone else paying for your investments, which is why he loves the insurance business, particularly what's called reinsurance, which is insurance for insurance companies, because the kind of a more long-tailed payout occurs. Yeah. And so, looking at Berkshire, what you really see is they've got the core insurance business, and then they have these stocks, which are also making Berkshire a lot of money. Then the third piece is that they have a number of wholly owned businesses, and Matt sort of alluded to this, but Berkshire owns a railroad. They own utilities companies. They own Fruit of the Loom, Brooks Running, and a number of other companies, some of which you know and some of which are really niche players. But all of those then are able to provide more and more cash for Berkshire shareholders. So it creates this kind of flywheel effect whereby each of the different, very disparate parts of the business, including, by the way, things like Dairy Queen, <laughs> can sort of add and build to the whole. Now, we've glossed over a lot about insurance companies here in the interest of time so that we can really focus in on the letter, which is what we're here to talk about. Um, so I have two content links to send you if you email me at industryfocus@fool.com after today's episode. The first is a primer on insurance companies, if you will, the Insurance Investor's Bible, which is written by one of our best writers on fool.com. And it can really help you understand the insurance business, why Buffett loves it, 
why maybe you love it, or maybe you don't love it. And the second, of course, is a link to Buffett's annual letter itself. We're going to be summarizing some of the main points, but it's a lot longer than we have time to fully cover today. And if you want to hear pearls of investing wisdom from really the most brilliant, in my opinion, most brilliant investor alive today, it's it's kind of hard to beat the annual shareholder letter. So, uh, again, the insurance bible and Buffett's annual letter, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com. Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and turn to the letter itself. Um, one of the first things that one of the big things that Buffett highlighted in his letter is something that we've been hearing a lot about lately, which is tax reform. Yeah, Berkshire was a big beneficiary of tax reform and not for the reasons that you've heard being talked about with other companies. Berkshire benefited because of its stock portfolio. Um, just to name one example, they, uh, Buffett acquired their massive Coca-Cola investment for about $1.3 billion, and it's worth about 18, a little over $18 billion today. So if Berkshire were to sell that, they would owe tax on it. Now the corporate tax rate has dropped from 35% to 21%. All of Berkshire's stock positions have less of what's called a deferred tax liability. Um, and this is a big deal because Berkshire's stocks are worth about $96 billion more than he paid for them. So this is a big benefit. Um, overall, it was $29 billion uh, in increased book value immediately following the passage of the tax bill. So this is a big deal for Buffett and his shareholders. Yeah, and it's interesting that it was sort of a different... Uh, issue than we've seen sort of elsewhere in financials when the banks benefited, most of which in their case was by um, actually a, a damage, short term damage, if you will, from tax reform because they had to write down some liabilities, but of course, long term benefit to their tax rates. Um, another big point that Buffett noted was that Berkshire Hathaway now has $116 billion in cash. And that is, in any world, a lot of money, but for Berkshire, it is. A really big amount of money, um, and what's interesting about this actually is that um, this massive cash pile is recruited despite the fact that Berkshire actually did not run an underwriting profit last year. Now, this is the first time in a long time they hadn't, but because of various natural disasters, which you've probably been hearing about in the news over the past year, uh, Berkshire actually didn't uh, achieve an underwriting profit for the first time in a long time. Yeah, Berkshire's one of the more profitable insurance operations, I would say. Mm -hmm. And this is what I was kind of talking about with the reinsurance business, where it's more of a long-tailed payout. Most years you're going to do really well, but then on occasion you're going to have a lot of natural disasters that affect other insurance companies a whole lot, and then you're going to wind up having to pay out more money. Um, but on the topic of cash, um, Berkshire accumulated an additional $7 billion worth of cash in the fourth quarter alone. They simply cannot find any way to put it to work um, that Buffett you know, would approve of. Buffett does not like paying dividends, even though he mentioned it about a year ago. It turns out that might have just been out of frustration. He really has no interest in paying a dividend. Um, share buybacks are another possibility. But really, Berkshire wants to buy more companies or invest in more common stocks. They just can't find attractive ways to put you know, a, a, over $100 billion to work. Buffett likes to keep about $20 billion in reserves at all times, so... Realistically, they would spend in the 90s, a little over 90 billion on a deal if they could find one, but he just can't find anything cheap enough. And what's really interesting about this to me is that 
you know, last year was the largest year for mergers and acquisitions. I mean, according to, uh, I, th- I think it was McKinsey, no, uh, Thomson Reuters, about $3.5 trillion in deals last year. And yet, Buffett couldn't find anything that he wanted, and or anything really big that he wanted. There were some smaller bolt-on acquisitions. Again, that sort of stuff's in the letter, but really wasn't able to do kind of the big deals that he was looking for. And it's interesting to me because um, Buffett really kind of dedicated about a page of his letter to just taking to task people for the way they've made mergers and acquisitions recently. One of them being that he said basically, hey, you know, there's been a lot of cheap and easy debt, and that's one of the reasons that there's been all this M&A activity. Me and Charlie Monger think it's really, really dumb to borrow what you don't have to buy something that you don't need. And I'm paraphrasing him very closely. That's pretty close to a direct quote, where he's just basically like, what are you doing? Why are you, you know, levering up your balance sheet for something that isn't necessarily, that is only going to be accretive because you're levering so hard with debt? Yeah, he brought up this concept of uh, synergies, which are often used by companies to help justify M&A activity. And to be fair, in a lot of cases, it makes sense. If you're a retailer and you have one management team overseeing 100 stores and another company has one management team overseeing 100 stores, and you combine that into one management company overseeing 200 stores, obviously, it's you know there's some cost savings to be had there. But... Buffett's point is that that's synergies. This concept is used to justify deals that otherwise don't make sense, which is what we're seeing a lot today. A lot of deals. I mean, Buffett said they've evaluated a lot of deals over the past year, but none of them made good financial sense. And Michael just mentioned that M&A activity has been through the roof. And a lot of the reason that companies are justifying this is, oh, the cost savings we'll get from this. Um, we're going to you know, work out the kinks with this. All these, these synergies that are expected that Buffett said when they evaluate deals, they don't, first of all, don't even consider synergies. Then second of all, he said they, want, they don't wind up finding any normally after they do complete a deal. So Buffett kind of takes a different kind of perspective on evaluating a deal than most companies do, which is why Berkshire has had such a tough time coming up with acquisitions they could justify. And it's interesting because when I when I look at Buffett's commentary, uh, my immediate thought was, okay, well what does what does the data say? And I I pulled up a found a McKinsey report that showed about um, I think it was about forty percent of mergers and acquisitions realized less than ninety percent of the synergies that they had claimed beforehand. And that tells me that there's probably a lot that he's talking about here and particularly because when you when you when I look at mergers and acquisitions activity a lot of the small ones um, they'll either work out or they'll fill cheaply right because if you're you know a 20 billion dollar company and you bought another company for a billion dollars and it doesn't work out it's not necessarily the end of the world but if you do a merger of equals between two 80 billion dollar companies and that you know does not generate the expected synergies um, then and you end up um, just cannibalizing each other uh, or creating dissynergies even, then that can be a lot more dangerous. And I, I've got to say, the more I look at um, the idea of synergies, the more skeptical I become of it. Um, just covering major deals in the last three or four years, I've 
seen a lot of claims for synergies, and it's usually been to to sort of help cement a deal that I wasn't really that thrilled about in the first place. And so, uh, for me at least, Buffett's commentary rang very true, and it's definitely um, a a bigger concern for me on my radar now than it was in the past. Oh, definitely, and it's especially true if the acquiring business takes on a lot of debt, as you mentioned, right? In order to fund the acquisition, then these synergies or lack thereof can be very dangerous, especially if that was used to justify the deal in the first place. Yeah, and it's one of those things where you, you just got to ask yourself the question, when the market's t- tacking left and Buffett's tacking right, who are you going to believe? <laughs> you know, and uh, just in general, uh, Buffett's got a real history of beating the market, and he's got a real history of kind of running a business really much better than almost anybody else. And so when he says, ah, that seems kind of not prudent, I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and he's not only beat the market, but he's done so in a way that most people consider boring and safe. Right. So, so it's kind of the best of both worlds. He's not taken on a whole lot of risk, but he's managed to beat all the people who have taken on all the risk. Right. Um, and actually with that, let's, let's hop into our, our next, uh, our next commentary here, which is, you know, he, <laughs> um, even though he has run a conservative business, frankly, Berkshire has swung pretty wild, wildly a few times. Uh, it's had four major crashes across its history. And one of his comments there is, Hey, <laughs> this is a sign, even with Berkshire, even with a, as big and sort of, if you will, blue chippy and safe as Berkshire Hathaway stock has historically been, it still had some major price swings. You probably shouldn't be borrowing money to invest because if you do, this is when really bad things can start happening. Yeah. And his advice, he also said, this will happen again. Not this might, <laughs> this will happen again. Do not borrow money to buy stocks. Um, the problem with borrowing money to buy stocks, uh, generally, um, with margin, you could buy, you know, twice the value of stocks as you have cash in your account. Um, so when a stock drops by more than 50%, you could actually wind up owing money if you're leveraged to the max and to buy the stock in the first place. Um, it could literally wipe out your portfolio. Whereas if you just bought what you could afford, over time, that's always come back and then some. Um, the big problem with margin is that also that you cannot take advantage of opportunities as they come up. Um, Buffett points out, we already talked about his cash, that they like to keep a, at least $20 billion on hand at all times, which to them is like, you know, me or you keeping $1,000 in the bank. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the reason they do that is so that when the market crashes like that, or even Berkshire stock crashes like that, they can take advantage buying the companies that they've been following at a discount, buying whole companies that when M&A activity dries up, they're with money, so then they get the best deals. Buying their own stock back at a discount after it falls by 60% during the financial crisis. So it's not only avoiding debt to avoid financial ruin, it's avoiding debt so you have financial flexibility when things do go bad. Yeah, and I would just kind of double underline that I I personally have about thirty um, percent, maybe twenty five percent of my portfolio in cash um, so far, basically at all times, because I've just always I, I've been an investor only during this massive bull market, and at some point um, things get ugly, and when that happens, 
those who have cash on hand can disproportionately benefit. Now, will I also probably start eating ramen during that time so that I can put even more money into the market? Probably. <laughs> but uh, at least this you know, guarantees at least some money that I can kind of start with then. Well, I, I was a little bit older than Michael. So, well, I am a little bit older than Michael. I was <laughs> Still into, are, yeah. <laughs> still am. Um, so I, I was invested well before, I think I started investing in 02 or 03. So I was invested well before the financial crisis through the bubble beforehand. Um, so I saw firsthand and I can tell you firsthand, I wish, wish I had had more money to put in the market in late 2008, early 2009. I would be in a much different financial category today if I had, mm. um, if I had really kind of known what I know today and like Michael said, would have eaten ramen and put all my money into the market during those the periods where everybody was panicking and staying on the sidelines or even worse selling. Um, th thankfully I didn't do any selling, but I was one of the unfortunate few who stayed on the sidelines and, um, but I didn't have a ton of debt. I hadn't bought on margin, so I didn't have to, you know, sell my stocks at a fire sale, which is kind of what Buffett wants people to avoid. And, and to be clear, we are not endorsing eating ramen <laughs> all the time, but no, it's, it's not very it's, healthy. Yeah, but every now and then, and particularly, you know, I mean, when I can get a dinner for twenty five cents, sometimes it's hard to argue with that. Um, and this is, by the way, just one of the things that's really great about Buffett's letter is that he spends. I mean, it's it's a letter to Berkshire shareholders, but it's also a letter to all investors basically ever. And so he certainly talks about Berkshire, and you've heard us talking about Berkshire and kind of weaving in Berkshire to this conversation, but he's also talking about just broader stuff. Hey, should you be investing in companies that are levering up hard to buy other companies? Maybe, but it depends on whether they've got a really good thesis behind that purchase. You know, should you be borrowing money to buy stocks? No. <laughs> and that's the sort of thing that goes beyond really his, his role as chairman at Berkshire but really expands into his role as the so-called Oracle of Omaha, you know, the voice of, um, um, of investing, really. Um, so and with that, though, to take the conversation back to Berkshire a little bit, <laughs> one of the other big things that we noticed in this letter was that he didn't really address some of the big things that we've been kind of hoping to learn more about. Um, I'd say particularly the succession plan. You know, he there. So so two of his lieutenants have now been appointed to uh, vice chairmanships. Um, and Ted Weschler and uh, Todd Combs are, um, are now managing more money while Buffett and Munger focus on finding investments. But it's still really not clear who's going to take over when our fairly old uh, chairman and vice chairman uh, decide to retire. I mean, don't get me wrong. I hope Buffett is in charge of Berkshire until he's well into his hundreds. But, but that's not that far away anymore. But that's not that far away, and it's and not only that, it's it's not that he's he's kind of given indication he might not want to work until he's that old. Um, he just retired from the Kraft Times board, was a big item in the news this past week. So he's kind of slowly stepping his role back, including you know serving on boards like that, managing Berkshire's investments. He's giving more and more leeway to Ted and Todd over the years. Right. So we were, investors were kind of, there were, there was, there were rumors circulating before the letter came out that there was going to be a big kind of reveal with his succession plan, whether it was, he was retiring or he would name an actual successor or whatever. 
but that didn't really happen. There was nothing, nothing really new in terms of the succession plan. Yeah, and it, this is one of those things that we're we're never really going to know because no one can really know the mind of Buffett. But you know, he's got Greg. You know, Greg Abel is now the vice chairman for non-insurance operations. So again, all the, you know, you Dairy Queens, Brooks, sort of all that other, all those other wholly owned businesses for Berkshire, and then Ajit Jain is now the vice chairman for insurance operations. And again, you've got. You know, Todd and Ted both managing larger portfolios, and then Buffett and Munger focusing on M and A. Not really clear. I mean, all of those are <laughs> the thing is, you know, insurance, not insurance, stocks. I mean, those are the three key pillars of Berkshire's operating business. It's not really clear whether any one of them will be foremost long term, and sort of, you know, like it's not it's not clear that you know Ajit's got the inside track because. Buffett loves insurance, or that you know Ted or Todd has got it, or 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 Greg Abel either, and so it's just very unclear what this is going to mean for succession. Yeah, um, another thing that I would have liked to hear more color with is this new healthcare initiative that they've been talking about in the news so much um, with Berkshire's collaboration with Amazon and J.P. Morgan. I, I was kind of hoping to hear a little bit more of what their plans are, um, why maybe the, the uh, acquisition, or not the acquisition, the addition of Teva Pharmaceuticals to his portfolio, did that have anything to do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, something like that. And he didn't mention too much about that or any of his stocks at all, uh, for that matter. This was actually a pretty short letter for Buffett. It's long in terms of you know thinking of writing a letter. But this uh, 16 pages, I think last year's was 27 or 28. Uh, they're generally in like the 30 page range. This one was only 16 pages long. Um, but yeah, the healthcare collaboration, I would have liked to hear a little bit more info about. He, he did mention in an interview today that they're actively searching for a CEO for that venture. But in terms of like kind of the how is kind of what I was hoping to hear. Yeah. And it's interesting because they've been very, very sketchy on details. There have been essentially no details uh, about this venture, except that the plan is to sort of try to bend the cost curve on insurance. That said... How? (laughs) Yeah, right, right. So, you know, we kind of want to know what that means. You know, that said, you know, Buffett has... has strongly implied a few times at past Berkshire meetings that he's like, yeah, you know, if there's a guy I'm not going to bet against, it's Jeff Bezos. And I... Michael would personally add to that. I generally don't believe in betting against Warren Buffett or Jamie Dimon where possible. So when all three of them get together, that I think says a lot about the potential. Um, certainly, Buffett has. My perception of Warren Buffett is that he has. He's not really a headline chaser. He's not the the kind of person who's to be like, yeah, you know, we're going to try to fix this thing and try to get basically a bunch of big PR out of something that's not actually going to make a difference. Um, what that's going to mean long term, of course, who knows? But um, I think we will definitely see questions about that at the shareholder meeting this year, which is um, uh, beginning of May. And I think we will also um, be expecting to see more in the coming years as well on that. Yeah, it's also, it's worth mentioning that generally if there is a Buffett surprise, it happens at the shareholder meter meeting rather than in the letter. That's been the case over the past few years. That's when he mentioned a dividend for the first time. Uh, last year, for example. So that's something just to kind of keep an eye out as we head toward, I think it's in May this year. It's see, it's at the beginning or end of the month. Um, not sure exactly which month it falls into this year, but I think it's May. Um, 
but yeah, that's definitely keep an eye out for surprises there. You generally don't see too many surprises in the letter, although there have been a few. Yeah, and uh, that is uh, Saturday, May fifth is the annual meeting. So thank you. Um, yeah, sometimes it's the end of April. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember that it was being the May, but uh, I had to look up the date myself. So yeah, uh, a lot of good stuff there. Um, I've been to the last two annual meetings, and I thought it was just fantastic, a really good time both times. And there's nothing like listening to Buffett and Munger just answer questions for. I don't know, six hours, something like that, each time to really give you a lot of um, respect for their uh, staying power and also cleverness under pressure. Um, so uh, a lot more, you know, this is Buffett is a story that we will be covering extensively, particularly as we get closer to the Berkshire shareholder meeting. Um, Matt, as always, thanks for coming on the show. And folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, or do you want those pieces of content I shared? You can always reach us at industryfocus.fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. I'm a Berkshire shareholder, personally, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.